We'd like to welcome our viewers from across North America and around the world. You are listening to the EdTech Situation Room, episode 145 for August the 28th, 2019. My name is Wes Fryer, and I'm coming to you from Oklahoma City, where we actually had an exciting weather week, and you got in our storm shelter, I think, night before last for like 15 minutes for the first time uh, ever, um, but not because we... I never needed to before. We just hadn't been fast enough. And anyway, uh, we're going to call this the, is this the weather show and the haircut show? I'm being joined by Jason Neifer, who has also, I think, got a haircut just for the show. So, Dr. Neifer, how is life in Missoula, Montana tonight? Uh, it is quite well, and it is true. It is haircut time of year. So <laughs> I am all clean cut for my, I was trying to figure this out the other day. I think this is my 22nd year um, in education. So pretty excited. Currently, I am the assistant director and curriculum director of the Montana Digital Academy, the state virtual school located on the fabulous University of Montana campus in the Phyllis J. Washington College of Education. Um, and we are Montana State Virtual School. So we help uh, serve students from across the state. Um, and probably the easiest way to describe our situation, Montana is, if it was a country, would be the 50th largest country geographically on Earth, larger than Japan and France and Germany. And as it turns out, uh, we have a population of just about a million people. So we try to connect students in uh, areas across the state with teachers in other parts of the state that might have similar interests like Latin, since they're just a handful of certified working public school Latin teachers in the state of Montana. So exciting work we do here at the University of Montana at the Montana Digital Academy. So that's me. But Wes, what I'm curious about, sir, what is this? Like, what are we doing here? Well, we are going to look at some recent headlines from the past week and actually two weeks because we were off last week. Normally, we are here on Wednesday night at 9 p.m. Central, 8 p.m. Mountain, yada, 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 whatever your time zone happens to be. And we will take a look at some of the recent headlines in technology news and try and analyze those through an educational lens. So if you would like to access the links that we are chatting about tonight, you can go to edtechsr.com slash links, where I think I saw tonight we have created a 177-page Google document over the course of time that we've been doing our show. And we are streaming via StreamYard and Restreamio again. And exciting, we were able to go to both Facebook Live and YouTube Live. So shout out to Lori Green joining us from Facebook. And uh, we have four live viewers. That is just pretty cool. So we want to encourage you to put in any comments or questions that you have into the chat. Uh, we will see those. I will actually see those. We got to be nice if we could simultaneously do that. But I will see them. And then if you pose a question, we can actually show that as a uh, comment down below. So yes, Peggy George joining us from Phoenix, Arizona. That is fantastic. So we are, um, I mean, they're like, this is our weekly conversation uh, most weeks. So missed it last week. It was the birthday week. So it all worked out. But uh, glad to be back and glad you're home safely. Where would you like to begin tonight, Dr. Neifer, with our very detailed analysis of the latest tech news? Well, um, I just probably maybe a, a really broad headline, and then there's some deeper things we can talk about tonight. So um, I'm kind of the Android rep on the show. And for those of you that are uh, kind of the tech-savvy Android faithful, something really big happened last week that was kind of a bummer for those that like the whimsy of Android. Uh, they have named the next version of Android 
Um, and the big debate has been, and, and, and admittedly, this is about as low impact debate as you're going to get in the tech field, but they were deciding ever since Android, uh, the first versions of Android, they named every version of it after a dessert. So there's an Android Pine, Android Oreo, Android KitKat. Uh, and they, uh, th there was a lot of, of time and mental energy spent determining what could possibly be Android Q, which was the next letter in the alphabet, uh, what could be the Android Q dessert. And Google has announced that they are renaming the schemes in Android, and it will be known as Android 10, as opposed to Android Q or Android, you know, the closest I could come is quinoa jello. I don't know what you would be doing there to, to, to get a Q dessert. There were actually a couple of desserts in, I believe, Spain and Brazil that started with Q, but uh, Android decided to just redo the naming scheme. So uh, even though it has really no impact on anything regarding ed tech or really technology in general, I do think a little bit of whimsy is going away out of the Android world. And I'm like many people who have gone to the Google campus and taken selfies with the large statues of the Google desserts, uh, going things like Google ice cream sandwich and uh, Google Kit Kat and all the googly uh, statues um, in California. So just to, uh, starting to show on a sad note that just a tiny bit of Android whimsy is no longer with us. That's right. Well, you know, that makes me think of my nine months of Android that I had a year or so ago. And I must say, uh, purchasing the used Apple Watch, which I am loving, um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not going back. So unless there's something really dramatic, Apple, you know, has these lovely names like the seven, you know, seven S, but, um, we, that does take me actually to an article, which I uh, put down at the bottom. It's not in one of our categories. Uh, but the next web reported on August 22nd that more than half of mobile phone users plan to keep their current device for three to five years. So that is probably not great news if your quarterly reports on income, you know, are based on folks, uh, you know, upgrading your device. We've talked on the show before about the transition that Apple is trying to make uh, to services and, you know, whether or not we're at smartphone peak, um, you know, our family is certainly at the point where we're not buying the latest device and we have been like that for a while. Um, I do have, by the way, and I should put it into the chat, uh, one of our older, la oh, I guess it's a laptop that we're selling on Swappa, but our librarian or our head librarian had shared that with me. And so that's where we got Rachel's, you know, iPhone 7 for Christmas last year. And so I've sold some devices there. So anyway, it is, I think, extremely relevant to the classroom that we've got so many, you know, kids on smartphones. And um, and actually there's some articles that we could, you know, speak to a little bit there. Uh, Jason, where are you with your personal and family upgrades. I know that you are probably tempted to get that latest version, um, but where where are you and how do you see that kind of settling out right now in terms of the, the industry with smartphone purchases? Sure, well, I, my family's been a little complicated since carrier subsidies went away. And part of that is that, you know, I think the subsidies did allow uh, uh, people to uh, easily afford you know, high-end smartphones uh, that otherwise it just didn't make as much sense to do as a monthly payment. And by building that cost into the monthly payment you pay 
for uh, self-service, I think it was a little easier. So I'm actually between carriers right now. Well, my family's between carriers. I've been firmly on T-Mobile for um, almost three years now, and I I will I will go back. I I have not I didn't have a single complaint about T-Mobile, and I I couldn't say that about a given week as a Verizon customer. So I'm very happy with T-Mobile, and it's been a really extraordinary experience for me, especially traveling, and and maybe more specifically traveling internationally. But I'm now trying to bring my whole family over, and it's a little complicated because. Um, everyone but my dad is an iPhone user and we have to sit down and take a look at, you know, the variety of newer phones available. And again, Apple is, is, is smartly keeping older phones available new. If we want to go in that direction, I think you can get as old as an iPhone seven. Maybe it's a seven S that you can get, uh, still brand new from Apple, which means it'd be supported at least until the, you know, immediate future. So that, that's really awesome. But, you know, that's going to cost some money to do that. And, you know, there are sales and there are, are, you know, great means to do that. But I will tell you something I have kind of noticed uh, recently. Um, I picked up, this was my geek of the week. A couple of people, uh, uh, a couple of people had, 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 uh, talked to me about it later, um, after I've been kind of, uh, kind of promoting it, but I have a, 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 a like $8 a month SIM through, um, Unreal Mobile. But something I learned about is that I didn't really like the app or the phone app on there. But as it turns out, um, what you can do is take uh, the SIM card in and not put any of the extra settings. Or I'm sorry, not not download the app. It becomes just a data SIM card. And I have a gig of, of high-speed data and then um, uh, uh, unlimited 2G data after the gig is up every month. And it rolls over any extra uh, high-speed internet that you have. But you can download you know, Hangouts Dialer. Um, and make phone calls with data using Hangouts Dialer, or my organization uses Ring Central as our voice over IP solutions. We have a lot of remote employees, so we can't be on the university's phone system. And that also works over data, including the, 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 the LTE data. And so I, you know, I can pull that off. I can't imagine, you know, my mom can, you know, she's fairly tech savvy. She's a business owner and, 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 uh, runs a retail quilt shop and, you know, uses computers a lot and revolutionized computer accounting in the early 80s. She's been around the block on computers. Well, that takes a lot of managing. So I think we're going to try to push everyone to T-Mobile and just wait for sales. Um, I also wish there was a less crapshooty, it's a word I'm making up tonight, less crapshooty way to buy used phones. You know, I think the... Um, Swappa is great. And in fact, I've purchased a, 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 a phone a couple of years ago that I really wanted and I ended up selling it back on eBay and actually made a small profit off of it. But, um, just to play with, it was a toy for me more than anything else. And, um, but you know, I know folks that even though it's, it's a better vetted site than buying from a, you know, maybe an unestablished seller on eBay, there's still risks in buying used devices. Oh, yeah. Definitely. Well, so yeah, I think it's a, it's an interesting debate and, you know, um, the, I do think the era of this thousand dollar cell phone, it's not over, but they're starting to become great, uh, mid range and low range priced phones, not just at Android. There's a lot of, of press around that they think Apple might be trying to release something, uh, this fall that, that is in that medium space. I don't think they'll go into the low end space because I think it hurts their brand too much, but, um, the SE, which was the version of the phone that's roughly the, the size of the iPhone 5 and 5S. Um, that's the one my mom has actually, she has an iPhone SE and loves it. I mean, it's, it's a great size and form factor. If you don't want a big phone, that might end up being the medium priced phone on the iOS system. I think it'd be fantastic for Apple to do that. We've also mentioned on the show before in terms of laptops, you know, we, 
we haven't gone one to one at our school and, and dialogue is continuing about that. We have a lot of Chromebooks, a lot of iPads, uh, and kids in the, in the high school can bring their own devices. But, you know, if Apple would come out with a very durable, you know, even $500 to $600 device, it, it, it would just be exceptional. Uh, we've, we've seen them yeah. do that before. Would love, love to see that. So another article that kind of relates to the idea of, of ubiquity with smartphones and devices. Uh, is from the Los Angeles Times, and this was on August 23rd. The title is, it's an op-ed, My High School Students Don't Read Anymore, I Think I Know Why. And this is by Jeremy Adams. And so pretty interesting that, you know, the the uh, the article is saying that smartphones are to blame. Uh, we live in the most distractible age ever. And so he is, as a teacher, lamenting that, you know, kids just don't read the way they do anymore. And this can be a familiar refrain from from parents and teachers and others just about how how terrible today is. However, uh, Carl Hooker, who is doing a lot of presentations, he's actually gone independent now. He's on his own uh, about digital citizenship. And we've, you know, b- both talked about this technology fear therapy and technology fear therapist had a, a pretty good set of tweets responding to this, talking about, you know, his consumption as an adult has shifted in many ways, listening to books on Audible and other things, um, you know, being able to. Uh, read and consume a much bigger variety of information sources and texts and, you know, overall feeling like he's better informed. So I think we certainly can always wring our hands about the latest generation, right? These kids, these days are just terrible. And there certainly are, and I think I'll talk in my Geek of the Week about a great podcast that that addresses this, you know, addictive uh, designs that not only uh, smartphones, but social media platforms in general and and these devices have. So they've got a real powerful pull on our attention. Um, But I'm, I'm interested, Jason, for the teachers that you work with at the Montana Digital Academy, is this anything that you've heard teachers talk about as far as reading and kids and how... Do you, you, this is an op-ed, so somebody's opinion that's being published right. in the Los Times. But you know, what what do you think about this contention that you know reading is dying as far as long-form books for kids? Well, I got to say that that uh, this is actually the crux of a new presentation I'm working on. Um, I'm likely to give it for the first time at at NCC in Seattle in March 2020. It was a um, it was accepted to their conference. And the reason why I know that is because I was part of the group that also went through presentation. So it made it. So good job committee, which I was on. Um, so the, um, uh, and it's, it's, it's probably really near and dear to me because I was around so many, um, um, so many, uh, um, I, that's not how I want to say this. So, so uh, the, the problem I, I keep running into is that there is so much hand wringing about the reading, reading issue right now in, in schools. And it's not wrong, but I don't think we're taking productive means to move ahead and try to find solutions to this. Right. And I'll give you an example of this. I was part of a lot of discussions when I was a high school teacher and I taught high school social studies mostly, but also some computer science, uh, newspaper production. I taught speech and debate classes. Uh, during my time as, as a high school teacher, but mostly in a social studies classroom. And 
uh, I always taught freshmen every year of my career. I've loved teaching freshmen. It's one of my favorite things to do, even when I was uh, turned into kind of AP and elective guy uh, during the latter part of my career. I always kept at least one section of freshmen. I thought I kept them grounded as a teacher. And I spent a lot of time talking with librarians and reading specialists uh, amongst other freshman teachers about the reading level of materials. And one of the things we don't really do anymore is that We've, I don't think it's per se a bad thing to ditch textbooks, right? In fact, there's a whole meme around ditching textbooks and a book called Ditch That Textbook and a whole professional development series called Ditch That Textbook. And it's a very popular notion. And I can tell you that not my, my AP texts, those were usually excellent, great college texts that, that had a lot of, of, of research and scholars behind them. But the garden variety texts that I could pick up from a textbook dealer was terrible and not not just that it was uh, uh, not very useful from a um, from a pedagogy standpoint like it didn't really talk about what I needed it to talk about it was boring it was designed usually in kind of a patronizing way but the thing you could rely on with a textbook is that if that was aimed at ninth graders it was going to be a ninth grade reading level and one of the things I'm really concerned about is that as we reutilize more um, uh, I guess repurpose more internet sources to turn them into de facto textbooks and de facto resources, we spend almost no time vetting whether or not that's an appropriate reading level for students. And then also think about, you know, is this developmentally appropriate for students where they're at? And one of the things that, that I often talk about, I don't like this whole notion that Googling somehow makes content less important because um, Googling doesn't provide you necessarily the answers to questions. It forms that you're ready to take it as a novice learner. And so, you know, it's, it's, it, yeah, I think, uh, um, um, uh, feeling a way or feel, feeling your way through this is, is sometimes um, um, extremely difficult when you don't have those resources left anymore. But I, I don't think we spend enough time thinking about like what is the what is the reading level of resources we send kids out to. And then I have a secondary piece to this. You know, there um, uh, we've talked about ad blockers in the past on, on the show. It's something that both Wes and I utilize, and it's not just because we don't want to be tracked. That's part of it. But I also acknowledge that the internet as it turns out, it has to be paid for somehow, right? A lot of content minus advertising just couldn't exist. But we send kids um, who are as distractible as we are as adults out um, uh, 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 out to uh, the Internet uh, to look at articles. And oftentimes if we tell them to search without giving them a lot of framework on how to search or where to search, they might be in sources that really are nothing more than click fit clickbait factories for advertising and then going out to extremely distracting content. And, you know, uh, I think of an ad blocker and then uh, you there's there's a lot of tools that are emerging on this. The one I like to use, and of course, now that I need it out loud, I don't remember the name of it, just this button that sits in my browser. Say it again. You block origin? No, that's the, that's the ad blocker I use, but there's also a great uh, uh, kind of text cleaner that you can click on. Mercury Reader is the name of the uh, of the extension. Really? To clean um, the text and make it yeah, easy? And, oh, nice. text and it, was, it used to be named something else and it keeps moving around and it's, it's got different uh, uh, different names and it's now owned by Postlight, which is a development a shop in New York City. So I think it's going to be around for a while. But you know, the Mercury Reader is a good strategy to give to students to say, that, you know, teaching them how to read on online, right? And I think part of that is, is that when we bemoan that students might not be reading anymore, it's not just, you know, 
change that may or may not be happening or perceptions that may or may not be real. It's really about, you know, are we helping people really read using the devices and the methods that they're using? And I don't think we spend enough time talking about that. I think just we assume the kids come to our classrooms pretty tech savvy, but they carry with them, in, in my humble opinion, some pretty bad habits that we need to, you know, play the teacher role, right? We are experts in learning. Um, we need to research and know about, you know, the fact that the Internet is kind of built around keeping you there. The example I used last week when I was pitching the session to someone else was that, you know, think about the number of sites now that at the end of the article immediately show you another article in a desperate attempt to keep you kind of in a hole of research on the site. And so I'm working on that. I think there's something there and I'm hoping to turn it into a presentation that's useful in a number of different contexts. But. You know, I think part of what that teacher's referring to there is the fact that we're just not spending enough time talking about literacy and reading in context of broader digital literacy, right? And literacy, digital literacy should include at least some thought around core literacy. Preach, preach. Yes, literacy has changed. I will channel David Warlick, you know, talking about the ways in which literacy has changed. And every time we've had which isn't that often, seismic changes in the way that information is shared and people are able to communicate. I mean, this is, if you haven't, you know, read Clay Shirky, um, here comes everybody, you know, here we are, you know, we are not only consuming content from all kinds of different sources, we are sharing it and we're publishing it. We live in the most, you know, not only distractible, uh, but also content rich, right? I mean, there are so many great places to, to get information, but the challenges to, that we have as, as literate readers and as citizens and just like human beings, I, it, it is, it's a bigger cognitive load. I, I totally believe that, you know, think about how much time it used to take you to get sources for a research paper. Right. I was talking to my kids about this because they don't know about the card catalog. I'm teaching fifth and sixth grade this year. Yay. Back in the classroom. I have my kids. Uh, I see them every other day. So I've had them for three, three sessions now, like six days. Um, they don't know about microfish and they don't know uh, that, that process that those of us that are older, don't we sound very, you know, we're back in my day. But seriously, it, it took a long time to get your sources and, and that, that is gone. I mean, the challenge today, and this was actually the workshop I did at the Atlas conference. I called it filtering the exo flood. I think I'm going to get to do that as a, as a webinar, um, for Atlas actually in October. By the way, Dr. Neifer and I are known from time to time to do presentations for hire. Uh, <laughs> you know, filtering is huge and, and we can no longer put the, the, the onus of a filtering responsibility on the librarian who's curated books that are on the shelf and magazines that are there to, you know, be selected. Um, librarians are wonderful and have a huge role to play and are absolutely vital in our schools. But the skill set, which not only librarians, but also classroom teachers and all of us involved in education, you know, needs need students to have and we need ourselves have shifted and changed. And I don't have this yet on my wall, but one of my favorite things to say at conferences, and it's like so fun to have have my, my own classroom again, is that video is the pencil of the 21st century, right? And I totally believe that students need to be as adept communicating with media as they are with text. And I think this, this article specifically and the same kind of refrain that we hear people complain about reading, it really highlights the bias that we have 
for text and for uh, a linguistic culture, which was predominantly written, right? And it, and it was, you know, consumed via, via reading. And that is just not the world that we live in today. So it's hard to change. It's hard to shift. There's a lot of value because we've probably all experienced, especially if you're an educator, but I think, you know, anybody who's a reader has experienced flow and has experienced just, uh, you know, trans transformative, you know, learning and just experiences when you're reading, right? Because when you're lost in a book, um, the chance to really <laughs> sit with an author's ideas and have them influence you when you're reading a book. I mean, this is still one of the reasons I think we need to write books. You know, I got to find time to be setting that, setting that time myself aside to do that and to get some things updated. So yeah, I, I, I agree. I'm excited to know Mercury rereader. Thank you for that. Yeah, um, when we was out, when we was at, when we was in uh, Rhode Island, I was in Rhode Island this summer at the, uh, Summer Institute on Digital Literacy, one of the things we were putting into our unit on unpacking and understanding controversial issues was a reader, like you said, that's going to simplify the web, eliminate distractions, and, and that's really a key kind of tool. So, yes, that is the rant. You'll hear lots of those here on the EdTech Situation Room. So where would you like to take us next, Dr. Neifer, on our wonderful list of links? Sure. Um, well, let's go ahead and jump in and talk about uh, this couple of real interesting things. Oh, let's, let's do a little Google stuff. Or I'm sorry, a little Chromebook stuff for a couple of minutes. So this is something very exciting for me, even though it's silly. And as uh, I, I guess I should also advertise myself, I think I'm the EdTech Situations Room resident Chrome, uh, Chrome OS geek. But uh, as I've mentioned in the past in the podcast, I am 100% Chromebook user now. Um, I use a Chrome desktop at work. I use a Chrome... Uh, a Chrome um, uh, Chromebook as my mobile machine, and in fact, tonight I'm joining from uh, a, a, a Chromebook that's in a docking station in my office at home. But um, Dell has done something that I think is really interesting in that they are now offering Dell Latitude Enterprise Chromebooks. They're way too expensive for what you get at this particular point, but the, the key piece here is that um, they are user serviceable, which means that you can add more RAM to them you can also add bigger hard drives to them. And I am blown away by that concept. And in part, I think part of the reason why they're going in this direction is to empower more uh, school techs to be able to upgrade, which is super great. More importantly, makes more of that user serviceable because that one thing about Latitude, um, except the, 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 the super thin ones that are you know basically glued together and impossible to get apart, but these are more industrial uh, application uh, Chromebooks, and you can go in and swap things out. You can swap the battery out. You can swap out a keyboard when it goes awry, and that's true of, of, of some of the, the, the Chromebook models in the, the cheaper end of things, but uh, they do have a Chromebook for sale right now that has an i7 chip in it and a terabyte SSD and 32 gigs of RAM. It is ridiculous. It is way too much for what you would ever need for a Chromebook, but man, if I could have the opportunity to buy an i7 Chromebook with 32 gigs of RAM and a terabyte, I'd say sign me up, right? Like that's, that's super great and you know, probably not very portable, but, but at least interesting thing to carry around. So a lot going on in Chrome world. And as we talked about in the past here, you know, the biggest problem with Chromebooks, uh, in my humble opinion, is that we, we lowball them in an attempt to make them an affordable option. And I get that in schools that want to go one-to-one, 
but you know, frankly, can't afford to do it otherwise, right? Some schools can afford Mac, some schools can afford four Chromebooks. That's the way it, it shakes out. But uh, my experience on Chromebooks is infinitely better because I have minimum standards. It's got to be an i3 chip or better. It has to have eight gigabytes of RAM. Storage isn't as big of a deal, but you know those two things make these things powerhouse machines. And so I love them. I will happily uh, uh, continue to carry one, but it's great to see that Dell is headed in that direction. So Wes, do you have $1,700 burning your pocket to get yourself an i7 Chromebook from Dell? Sadly, no. But as the person who is our director of technology the last four years and responsible for all of our repairs, you know, I lament the lack of repairability of Macs. And we have over 90 percent of our faculty on MacBook laptops, now the MacBook Air. And to not even be able to replace the battery, you know, much less the the uh, the hard drive. I mean, you just pretty much can't you can't crack it. You know, if, if it's not a software thing, it's you're going to avoid your well, I mean, we don't have certified Apple techs and whatever, so we, we just have to send it off. Whereas before, you know, with our 2012 vintage MacBooks, we were replacing hard drives with SSDs, sometimes putting in more RAM, uh, you know, doing a variety of different repairs. So that is a big philosophic difference. And I don't, we haven't seen any hints of Apple changing that at this point. So I do think that's welcome. And I think it's very interesting to see Dell targeting the enterprise in that way. In the, in the chat, Lori had, you know, put in a, a question about, you know, where do we see, uh, you know, kids in the market, or not kids, but just workers, you know, in the marketplace who are, you know, using uh, Chromebooks. Uh, she says, what company uses a, a Chromebook? Uh, hey, the Montana Digital Academy does, I guess. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, this is where Google and, and the companies in general are moving to the cloud and the web, right? Not only in terms of storage, but also in terms of being able to work. I know for our teachers, we have more than ever keeping all of their stuff on Google Drive. You know, right. it's almost like their MacBook <laughs> could be a Chromebook. I mean, yeah. we, we've, we've had interesting discussions and I'll just leave it at that about Microsoft Office and licensing because we, we have some shifts now happening to that subscription model, but you know, Microsoft's wanting $39 per user for that low end license that lets you have the client in software. And I think that many schools and many, you know, teachers are you know, probably in a situation where it's nice to have a conversation about what software do I need? This is also the first year we've licensed the Adobe Creative Cloud, and we've done that primarily for high school and for our students who are in our graphics classes and taking, you know, uh, design and, you know, honestly, iMovie can do most of what they're doing in their basic classes, but, you know, if they want to go to Premiere and, and do, you know, fancier kinds of video editing, it really is about what you want to do but the web is radically different today in terms of its maturity, in terms of the applications that can run on it. And I think our trajectory is a continuation of this move to the web where there's more and more of our work that we can do. It doesn't matter what device you have. And from an IT standpoint, it is incredibly easier to manage Chromebooks. Um, we've just been having issues because we have two mobile device management systems. We use Jamf for our MacBooks. And then we're still using this, what was Tab Pilot. It's now Tech Pilot. They were bought by Securely. Uh, we're happy with them, um, but we're having an issue because with two, you do, you do, uh, the, the uh, VPP, the volume purchase program, you know, from Apple and, 
it, you know, largely because we're buying stuff, I think it's just more complicated. We, we don't end up really purchasing much, you know, except digital content like textbooks and things that, that students buy primarily. Although, I mean, well, that's not true. There's, there's other kinds of subscription stuff, but anyway, it's not like apps as there is for iPads and things like that. So anyway, we're, we're having complications here. And so these kind of things happen and that's not all my responsibility anymore, but you know, if you've supported multiple platforms, you quickly realize what a game changer Chrome is. And that's not just something that, you know, school district IT people have to deal with. Hey, how about your house, right? How many devices are running around your house that have an operating system? And how readily can you blow that operating system away, put something new on it, have confidence that all your stuff is backed up, yada, yada, yada. So I continue to be a fan of Chrome. I continue to be glad that you know Google is doing all the things that they are to allow us to work, you know, device independently. And uh, I think that move from Dell's pretty exciting. Yeah. It, it, any other Chrome articles to pick up there? Yeah, a couple of quick ones. Uh, PC Magazine reported, I think this was today, and I'm actually pretty disappointed about this. Um, uh, this is the next two articles are are, are kind of complementary to one another. Uh, Chrome, uh, the browser, and the operating system are depreciating a couple of uh, what I would consider to be power user um, features in tab management. And uh, they have a, a picture of a menu of a, uh, this is a very early build of a future version of Chrome where they're taking away four different, um, uh, four different uh, functions out of the tab management. And the one that I'm promoting the most is reopen, close tab or, which is shift. I have to look at my hands here. It is because it's, it's muscle memory for me now. It's uh, control shift T will reopen the most recently closed Chrome tab. And since I use only keyboard commands for that, including control W to, to close a tab. And then sometimes I do that a little too quickly as my fingers get rocking and rolling. Then I have to, uh, you know, press control shift T to bring it back up again. So that's super interesting. But the kind of yin yang of this article is we, I've talked a lot and I've, Posted a couple of videos uh, in, in the last week of this on Twitter, but uh, virtual desktops has been released on Chrome OS, uh, catching it up with the original functionality in the Mac and the Windows 10. Picked that up, I think it was two years ago, and now Chrome OS does it as well. But there's also key commands now that you can utilize to switch back and forth between the different virtual desktops or open and close windows. And I have found a twenty-something dollar. Uh, a Logitech gaming mouse that has extra buttons on the side that are programmable. It's like actually in the firmware of the mouse once you program them. So I programmed the mouse on a PC. I put it on my Chrome box at work and I have all that functionality now in a mouse. And so I'm feeling like a real Jedi master here with the new virtual desktops on Chrome OS. So if you're a Chrome geek, uh, especially if you're a Chrome OS geek like I am, uh, it, really interesting, cool stuff available now. Um, in that new functionality. So some stuff waving, some stuff uh, um, new on that platform. Awesome. Well, uh, we're about a little over halfway through the show. I, there's definitely two more articles I, I want to be able to, to hit, discuss several, several more things. But let's go to um, this article that I put under media, automatic CEO Matt Mullenweg on what's next for Tumblr. Uh, this is from The Verge on August the 14th. And um, you may know that Matt is the creator of WordPress, which is arguably, after Apache, I guess, you know, 
the, the maybe I would say the second most popular and successful open source projects in the world. Maybe I'm wrong, but you know, Apache runs a crazy amount of the world's web servers. It's open source yep. Linux and uh, WordPress is similarly open source. But it's managed, and there's a company that's very profitable. They have WordPress.com uh, where you can host your stuff. And this article, this is really exciting. So we talked on the show uh, a while back about the purchase of Flickr from, um, well, it was, what, originally Yahoo and then Verizon, I think, acquired and now uh, SmugMug has, has bought it. And so I'm so glad because I have over like 50,000 pictures on Flickr. And it was one of the early, you know, Web 2.0 tools that is just fantastic. There's so much openly, so many, a large quantity of openly licensed uh, photos there, uh, media content. And, and it's just phenomenal. And so I was real excited to see that. Well, similarly, you know, I am not a huge Tumblr user, but Tumblr um, was one of the early platforms that just made it very simple to not only post text, but also to post other kinds of content. I didn't know this, but I guess celebrities like maybe Taylor Swift. I probably ought to look at the article again to make sure I'm getting the name right. Uh, anyway, some celebrities have a really, you know, big following there and have found that Tumblr is still a, a big deal. Um, this interview, so, so Automatic, which is the company that Matt runs that has WordPress, has bought Tumblr, and they're really looking to reinvent it. And for those of us, and I know Peggy is in this group, uh, and Jason is as well, uh, Lori maybe, you know, the early days of the web were so exciting in terms of the interactive web with blogs and people having their own space and the dialogue and the conversation, stuff that wasn't on Facebook, it wasn't on Twitter, it was different. Of course, you had a smaller group, a smaller number of people that were on the web. And so that that changed it. But I was was very inspired and excited reading this. Also, as a you know big WordPress user, uh, because I have a number of WordPress sites, I was very excited to read about the integration with WooCommerce, uh, because actually I need to, you know, migrate um my own site where I have my eBooks, which are very old, by the way, and need to be updated. Uh, but anyway, those are for sale and some other things. And I have a membership site that I have and, and need to be, you know, publishing more into actually this, this uh, fall. So maybe I'll be doing some more of that. Anyway, that was great to hear about, uh, making it easier for folks to deal in e-commerce on their websites and then just, you know, optimistic about how perhaps we could have some vibrant communities that aren't owned majority by Mark Zuckerberg or, you know, by Google and where the whole focus isn't just surveillance capitalism. Because as we've mentioned on the show before, um, that is really the dominant model today for Facebook and for, uh, you know, Google, YouTube, um, these big platforms. So Jason, thoughts on Tumblr and any interest at all in seeing it uh, revived? Uh, and I'll say one last thing. They, they point out how important Apple is and the fact that if there's porn on your site, on your app, you're off the store. And Matt says, you, you know, Tumblr's got to be on the store. So it's going to remain cleaned up in that respect, which I think is very positive. But anyway, thoughts about Tumblr, thoughts about, uh, you know, having it resurrected. Is that going to, are you going to race out right now and, and, you know, bring back your Tumblr site from 2004? Well, um, Tumblr is great. Uh, to be clear, it's such a, it's such an interesting blogging medium because of the visual nature to it, I've always thought it was a really clever way of doing that. Obviously with fire, 
Um, I'm excited to hear that Tumblr might make a comeback in that there's so much, um, I, I would call it pop culture content that, that has been made so popular on Tumblr that it would be, it's good to have those things stick around, you know, in, in, uh, uh, you know, for the longest of time. The, obviously the, the adult content component of Tumblr is part of what makes that, uh, uh, um, um, uh, part of what, what makes that difficult to, to, to figure out where that fits in the marketplace. But I think the more we can keep these tools around, the better. And to be frank, I mean, I, you know, blogging isn't as exciting as it was when it first came on the scene 15 years ago. Um, uh, and as it turns out, um, uh, there's probably less of a need of it because people express themselves in, in, in different ways. And, but I, I think it's great. I never had a Tumblr. It was, I set up one up once, didn't really do it. The lot of the kind of retumbling or retweeting component of it was interesting, but um, I'm just glad to see that so many people that have invested content there, that content is not, not gone for good. I want to give voice to our chat. So this is feeling a little bit like CNN or whatever. We've got, you know, the, the chats going and, um, yeah. We got a, a back channel, which is great, uh, with Lori talking about, you know, engineering aerospace companies and things like that. Uh, back to our Chromebook discussion. Um, what I would just say there is, I mean, of course, I mean, my son is a senior in, in mechanical engineering. He's probably going to go get a master's degree in computer science. I mean, he's, he's using a MacBook. He's, he's running SolidWorks. He's, he's not running everything on the cloud. Um, but like, that's a subset of people, right? There's all kinds of knowledge workers out there who do not need to be running CAD and do not need to be running, um, you know, engineering software. And so it's always hard to find one, one size fits all that that's a big challenge. Um, I do hear, and because we're having these conversations at school about how, you know, a full blown laptop is going to be able to do anything that you want. Um, but you know, not only considering budgets, but also considering the maturity of the cloud, there's a heck of a lot that is being done and can be done on the cloud. And so I think that continues to make Chromebooks very attractive. So there we go. We're having this disjointed, fractured conversation. Because yeah, and I'll, even help I'll go back to answer the conversation there. I see the video of us, and it's off. So, like, I hear you talking, I look up, and I'm talking, and I get totally confused. So we're Yeah, just- right. It's some serious, like, if you'd like to be distracted – Jump into StreamYard, but it's good. Like I, I'm thrilled. Yeah, That's some, yeah, live live channel and you know folks asking questions and back and forth. So that is yeah. that is great. Uh, your next article, sir. Sure. Yeah, I, the the piece here that I want to talk about uh, that, that's also super interesting and a lot of interesting stuff going on right now. This this article took me a little by surprise, and and I have a very specific reason why. And I have kind of a funny story to tell regarding this. The New York Times talked about yesterday how LinkedIn has become a like a hotbed of the Chinese government recruiting spies in the rest of the world. Right. And it's, it's, I'm glad I, I'm glad I, I saved the article when I saw it yesterday and read it early this morning. And as it turns out, what I was concerned about was that, uh, that this was, uh, this targeting piece was, was maybe a little more broader than people that used to work in, work in, in foreign affairs, in, 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 in governments, Western democracies around the world. Uh, they're not targeting, uh, uh, curriculum directors from distance learning programs in Western Montana. So that, that's good news. But as it turns out, I, I turned on some analytics on where I'm currently hosting my personal website and, and a full 50% of all my traffic comes from China. Full 50%. And I don't think it's an error and I don't think it, and it's fine. I mean, I, it's, there's no problem that my, my, my page has worldwide audience, but I tend to be relatively loose on accepting LinkedIn uh, requests, especially if the person knows someone else that I know, right? Because that's part of the point of 
the networking component of LinkedIn. And LinkedIn has not had a lot of the problems of other social networking platforms because it is so career and networking focused. But apparently there have been a number of folks that have been targeted uh, that are usually former ministers or low level ministers in government uh, uh, offices regarding democracies around the world. And as it turns out, um, um, they're being, you know, it's utilized as a recruiting tool for spies. So ladies and gentlemen, not even LinkedIn safe anymore. Be careful out there. And that reminds of, uh, of, of the metaphor that I heard on the podcast I'll talk about in the, the Geek of the Week, which is, you know, not people, people might not realize when you're coming to Facebook, for instance, it's a fight and, uh, people are bringing a knife to a gun, not a gunfight, but a space laser fight. I mean, the ways in which, we need to be media savvy and media literate and, and people have different agendas and platforms are being weaponized is pretty crazy. So on the topic of China, the other article I wanted to get to for sure is fast company, August 26, 2019 Silicon's Valley's China, Oh, pardon me. Chinese style social credit system. Now this is a bit of an over the top headline. I know shock for, you know, seeing that on the web or, or, um, you know, in mainstream media. If you're not familiar with what's happening in China today with respect to this social credit system, uh, this article, you know, is kind of a, a good summary. Um, that is this social credit system they say has been in place there since 2014. It's a single nationwide point system for all Chinese citizens akin to a financial credit score. It aims to punish for transgressions that can include membership in or support for the Falun Gong or Tibetan Buddhism. By the way, by saying that name out loud and the fact that this podcast may very well be transcribed, I mean, that alone could possibly, you know, get this show and channel banned off of uh, you know, all Chinese internet airwaves, because that is, that's just like, it, it is literally like Voldemort. He shall not be named because you, you cannot say that name. That's the fact that that group had their website on PB Wiki was the reason that PB Wiki was completely blocked in China when I went there in 2007. I had to move everything over to PB Works, but I digress. Anyway, the whole system in China there is pretty scary because it's extra legal. It is, um, not something that can be appealed. And so like for jaywalking, playing loud music on a train, um, you know, smoking, uh, failing to sweep your sidewalk. I mean, there's all these crazy things that can get you bad points and you might not be able to get a visa, travel abroad. Your kids might not get in private school. Crazy. So what's happening in the United States? Well, I didn't realize this, but, uh, there was a ruling in New York that, um, uh, it says the New York Department of Financial Services announced earlier this year, so earlier in 2019, life insurance companies can base premiums on what they find in your social media posts. Now, this could be as innocuous as, you know, they say, do you skydive? And then you, you know, post a picture of you skydiving or base jumping or something. Uh, but this has been one of the big fears about surveillance that, you know, my, I'm going to be denied insurance. I'm not going to be able to get medical coverage. Um, and so it, it, they have a whole series of other things. You know, bars are using something called patron scan uh, for them to try and basically share information about people who are troublemakers, you know, get in fights, things like that. And the point they make is uh, this is dangerous in part because it's extra legal. You know, it's outside the legal system. It's opaque. You really can't look into it to know what kinds of information they have. I don't, I don't think there's a freedom of information pathway to, to get that information out. 
I will just, I'll say overall, I don't think it's inevitable that the United States becomes like China with respect to surveillance and the levels of uh, privacy loss. I think that the Chinese people are already living under. I think that, you know, we need to be standing up for our values and looking at how, yes, regulation, having the Congress be involved in, you know, setting up some, some rules for things, um, can, basically, um, you know, protect citizens. We have consumer protection laws in the United States today that do a lot of different things to protect us from hopefully being so easily ripped off and people just doing egregiously horrible things. And there are roles for, I would argue, for consumer protection. Um, and anyway, I mentioned some stuff about fiduciary relationships and the geek of the week. But Jason, are you concerned about surveillance and the trajectory of the United States vis-a-vis uh, -vis China and what we see happening with, uh, let's say, the Uyghur minority and the ways in which surveillance tech is being used to keep a lid on dissent. Hong Kong, we could talk about that, actually. There's no articles this week in our show about that. But. Sure. Uh, well, there, there's, there's, there's ones that approach that because of the fake YouTube channels that have been taken down. That's mentioned in some of the YouTube articles I posted that YouTube has taken out like 120 basically fake news channels uh, spreading, spreading disinformation about the situation in, in, in Hong Kong. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a huge deal. I don't, I feel like until we have more direct protections of privacy, maybe spelled out in federal law. And I would say, I absolutely would say that, that at some point, um, you know, there is no direct re reference to privacy in the United States Constitution or in the Bill of Rights. And, um, it may take a constitutional amendment guaranteeing a right to privacy, I think, to be able to kind of get to that point. But one of the things I don't like about the kind of clown circus around the social media stuff and hauling, uh, you know, Mr. Zuckerberg and and uh, uh, the Google guys up to uh, Capitol Hill to chit chat is that I don't think that's going to actually do anything because this is not a Facebook problem. It's not a Google problem. It's much greater than that. And so until we have laws that protect individual privacy and, and I'll admit the handful of candidates that are talking about this candidates for office in 2020 are getting my attention because that happens to be a solution we can put in place that would be you know, very interesting. I think there's a counterbalance to that. Um, Wes and I have talked constantly about how the European Union seems to be approaching some of this stuff. And, you know, they are very privacy driven and very rights driven. Um, but the bottom line is, is that, um, you know, uh, there, there's, there's a balance out there we got to find, but we're not going to find it by slapping around tech companies. We can regulate them, I think. But, you know, I don't, you know, the fine they gave Facebook for the election stuff was, you know, like the pocket change in the couch in their, uh, you know, ping pong room. So it's not, it, it's not, not going to do anything. But uh, I do think better protections of privacy are absolutely required. I mean, it's like Oklahoma just uh, had a victory in the court against uh, opioid companies, but the penalty was so small relative to what they were going for. Someone was just telling me that stock prices for the pharmaceutical company shot way up, you know, so it's just this minuscule little, little slap on the slap on the wrist. Not something they were really going to notice. Yep. Let's see. Uh, how about... Um, well, this is just a quick one. Uh, Sphero buys little bits in a bid to dominate connected educational toys. This is from The Verge on August 23rd, 2019. And um, now that I'm back in the classroom, I'm not actually in a STEM classroom. We're doing digital literacy and media literacy. So I'm not, I don't have Spheros. I'm not going to be buying those. But 
I definitely had those. And so, um, you know, we're having a, a back channel discussion here relating to coding and third party software and some things like that. And to that point, you know, when it comes to coding, uh, my wife and our librarian led a wonderful, actually two different week long robotics camps this summer for students in grades two, uh, incoming, I guess, second graders through eighth graders. And it's so important when we teach coding and when we have students, you know, interacting with tech, there's a line between just playing and sort of driving a remote control car and then actually learning computational thinking, using algorithms, solving problems, doing the, the hard fun that, that is coding and is not just playing. And so anyway, I, that's one of the things I've seen with Spheros is there's a tendency perhaps to, um, Anyway, not not get into, you know, some more serious coding, but that's hey, that's what teachers have to do. Right. That's our role is to help kids actually, you know, engage in some deep thinking. And so Sphero is buying little bits. And so little bits is pretty amazing. It's very expensive. Uh, my wife is actually eyeing a STEM grant and I was just asking her tonight. What would you get or what would you buy if you if you got that that money and little bits was one of the things that came to mind. So um you know, I'm glad to see both of those companies, I think, doing well. I'm glad to see, I mean, LittleBits has so many different applications for, um, you know, far beyond, you know, gaming and, you know, drones or, or, or robots, just, you know, being able to, you know, bling out your clothes, make LEDs, do fancy things, all sorts of different connections. So glad to see that. Have you had a Sphero in your house, Jason, or any any intersection with LittleBits uh, in courses you've been teaching or anything like that? Um, I know someone super into them. Uh, middle school computer science teacher and uh, super, super great stuff. And um, it's it's fun to watch. And it is really interesting, the connected toy market, I I would imagine that it is, it's tough to, to turn a profit in that because uh, a lot of the applications are very expensive and they just don't have the longevity. You know, it's probably something that you're going to find that's going to be lasting for three or four years before the technology itself doesn't make much sense anymore, or they just don't have the rigor that's required to be a, you know, a physical object in the classroom with, with the hands, uh, middle school hands, which are active and sometimes not very gentle, but interesting to watch that market. And I love that stuff, the physical manipulative, uh, connected stuff in general is just super great. And I've sat through so many great workshops and observed a couple of classrooms too that were all over that and uh, really, really, really great stuff. So good to see that, um, you know, hopefully that's a, a, a pathway to sustainability for profitability for both of those particular entities. So um, I do want to share a couple quick articles uh, and probably just referring to, to listeners to maybe go to later, but a lot of interesting stuff going on on YouTube. Um, the Verge uh, today reported that um, there is is more and more research about the notion of YouTube like nudging people to become more radical in their views, and um, they uh, they they do link to the paper. And they do note it's not peer reviewed yet, and so it's an early result um, on that. But I have to say, interesting so far um, that that seems to be the case, and. Um, you know, as I, I, I liken it, the politics is what they're talking about, right? Political views, philosophical views, approach to the world. But, you know, it's also kind of like how I'm being delivered stuff. I've got a, a four or five interesting things that I watch on YouTube from maybe small market careers, the way to describe them, people with uh, 30, 35,000 or less subscribers. But, you know, once you start getting into the 
uh, surprisingly large tool restoration, vintage tool restoration community, which is the last thing I need is another, uh, another gadgetry habit in my life. But, you know, it starts recommending stuff to you. that's a little more hardcore, like people that will, you know, try to create uh, a means in their backyard for melting down aluminum and other such, you know, kind of hardcore maker hobbies. But And our son actually created an aluminum forge the year before he left for college. So yeah, how do you think he learned cool. to do that? It was YouTube. Yeah, super cool, by the way, and geeky. But he didn't burn down the garage, so that was a real bonus. Yeah, that's story. always the thing, too. Yeah, so and you know, but um, I, I just think it's interesting that we're starting to, to kind of kind of come to, to to terms with that. But I want to mention a counterbalancing article to that. Um, recently, the uh, YouTube CEO, and I think this was in a, an interview that was posted on Recode, um, noted that this is not the time to take away people's means for communicating and then uploading your video and views should always be 100% unregulated. And um, I, very interesting. Obviously, there's tons of things right now that are going on that, that, that question that notion. YouTube has been embroiled in a controversy because of some things that, that, depending on how you look at it, may or may not be hate speech and terrible, terrible, terrible accusations back and forth. As we talked about on the show, you know, you're not going to find two people that, that are big of, of, of advocates for giving students voices in the world. But remember, when everyone has a voice, everyone has a voice. And when everyone has, has an option of grabbing a microphone or megaphone, if you will, then everyone has an option for grabbing a microphone and megaphone. And I'm not saying we can, we can undo this or close Pandora's box or even that we even really want to. It's just an interesting middle ground we got to find somewhere, as, as we've called it, the tech correction in the back, the back and forth of this. That's one of the debates we're going to have to figure out. Yes, absolutely. Um, okay, we're going to need to do Geeks of the Week here, but let me uh, let me throw out a, just some two fantastic media literacy pieces. Um, if you don't listen to The Daily, The New York Times, that is not literally a daily podcast for me, but almost. I really, really love this podcast. And on the 22nd of August, they had a great show called What the 2020 Campaign Sounds Like and talking about the playlists and the ways in which, you know, voters oftentimes are going to, you know, be swayed by a feeling. And so it's just fascinating, both on the Democratic side and then also uh, as we look at our, our, our present chief executive, it's actually, we're not going to get really political here, but they describe the rallies for our president as kind of a megachurch experience with the ways in which music and the whole experience, it's, it's really fascinating and certainly interesting from a media literacy standpoint. And so let's juxtapose that with the Al Jazeera article from August 22nd also, India's patriotism pop songs urge Hindus to claim Kashmir. If you haven't been tracking this, the Indian government like since 1947, has given the province of Kashmir a lot of independence because it is primarily Muslim and it borders Pakistan. And they have had that for a long, long time. Well, the new president of India has been empowered to shut that down. And so about two weeks ago, they cut off all communication. Like we're talking not just, you know, Internet, phones, everything. And that was to prepare for the military coming in and basically kind of imposing martial law. And now they've decided, they've declared that Kashmir doesn't have, you know, freedom. And so 
<laughs> this reminds of the occupied lands in terms of Palestine and Israel and the ways in which the West Bank and, and Israelis have moved into those areas because popular music right now in India that is trending is music that is encouraging Indian people to move to Kashmir to take Kashmir brides and to take over their land. Freaking crazy, right? So, but it's popular music being quote unquote weaponized through social media to share these media messages to try to manipulate the population. Wah. So that's under the title of media literacy. So Jason, your title track for the 2020 election, maybe we'll give that to you as your homework assignment. Personally, I think I'm going to jump on the Bernie Sanders bandwagon, but you know, that's just, that's probably whatever, whatever you need to do. Yeah. Whatever you need to do. We may have just lost uh, half our, our viewers. So yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, certainly. And no matter what your persuasion is, we may have lost half our viewers. So, um, so, uh, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, those are crazy articles as far as the ways in which music here in the United States is affecting political campaigns yeah, and being sure. utilized and shaped. Yep. And then you see how, it's being utilized in this very, you know, controversial and uh, authoritarian, you know, state-sponsored propaganda, basically, to affect the minds of the people. What powerful tools we have placed in the hands of those that would seek to hack others' brains, whether that's advertising for a product or a political cause. Sure, absolutely so. All right, Geeks of the Week, sir, what do you got for us? Sure, just a quick one, super interesting. Helped a friend set this up a couple days ago, and it's pretty slick. Um, you know, as we've talked about in the past, Microsoft lost an opportunity, um, uh, uh, lost an opportunity to, to really create a great mobile device uh, uh, by, I think, being too late to the game, not understanding that things were going towards mobile and touch screens, and then once they got started, didn't uh, do enough to, to bring developers in. And you know, that may or may not be true, depending on you know, your view of that. But they lost the phone wars, right? It's an Android and iOS world. But uh, they've really gone all in on Android, and you can do this. We've, we've talked about this in the past in the podcast. You can take an Android phone and largely turn it into mostly a Microsoft phone. You can even actually look have it look like the old Tiles interface that they introduced that was really so revolutionary to UI. But there's a great Microsoft app that you can download um, on Windows, the newest version of Windows 10. Um, I believe it's called My Phone, and um, it allows you to, in essence, um, uh, 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 connect to your phone and on your desktop or laptop Windows machine, you can not only see and text from it to your phone, right? You can use that to text. You can also see and, and, and swipe away notifications. So it's a way to kind of put your phone away and stay away from that and still have access to your desktop. So the Your Phone app, I believe it's only the last two versions of Windows 10, so that would be 1903 and 1810 that have that available to you. But that, that is available uh, as an app. Um, on Windows and Android. So good luck. Great stuff. Fantastic. And my Geek of the Week is a podcast recommendation. And this is from the Center for Humane Technology. We have talked about Tristan Harris, who is one of the co-founders. And the shout out is for episode three. I'm working my way through about, they have about seven or eight episodes out. And the title of this is With Great Power Comes No Responsibility. And this is an incredible interview with Yale Einstadt, who is a former CIA officer and former White House advisor. And one of the things that they talk about is how, in their view, and I think I really actually agree with this, 
um, the relationship between users and the companies thinking of F- uh, Facebook and, and, and Google, um, with platforms like YouTube, it's very unequal. It is presented as an equal relationship where we give away our data and then we receive these free services and it's so wonderful, but it's actually very unequal because we're not able to see that data. Um, and we are giving away very confidential data that could be and is being used against us in many different ways. And so one of the things they talk about and highlight in this podcast is that they say we need regulation that imposes a fiduciary relationship upon these companies, much like you have for lawyers, right? When a lawyer is representing you, they cannot then just go sell your information to a company or to someone else. They have a legal obligation to keep your information confidential and to represent you, and that's called a fiduciary relationship. Fascinating. Really, really good stuff. And so I highly recommend that podcast episode, episode three. Uh, and overall, the Center for Humane Tech is doing some great work, and it's definitely challenging my thinking about a lot of these issues that we talk about, the tech correction and, you know, what should be done and what do we need to advocate for, et cetera, et cetera. So when you are not here enlightening us in the world of Android, Chrome, and EdTech, Jason, where can people find you and how can they connect with you if they would like to? Sure. Best place to do that is on Twitter. Tech Savvy Teach is my Twitter handle. I also work with the Northwest Council for Computer Education blog on ncc.org, and they are a, a purveyor of fine professional development services, also consulting and e-rate services, www.ncce.org. And you, Dr. Fryer. I am W. Fryer on Twitter. Blog is speedofcreativity.org. Uh, we just published actually our updated responsible use policy for our middle and high school students, um, as well as presentations that we shared today uh, in our chapel services, uh, you know, talking about the fact that we monitor with gaggle and we are asking students to be responsible for what they do online, just like they are face to face. And you can find that at our school's digital citizenship website, which is digcit, D-I-G-C-I-T dot U-S. And you can click the link for students to see that presentation. So we want to thank everybody for tuning in. Thanks to Lori and Peggy, especially. And we've had five live viewers. We do now. So, hey, if you've been checking us out, uh, please check out the archive shows that you'll find on edtechsr.com, little 32 kilobit audio versions, as well as smaller 20, no, 360p, uh, about 200 meg. If you want to download that video version, of course, you can always just see it on YouTube and you can follow us on Twitter at edtechsr. So, We will be back again, hopefully next week. And until next time, we encourage you to stay safe and stay savvy. Farewell.